Hello and welcome to Canelrent Sound of Play 112. In Sound of Play, we bring you some of our and your favorite pieces from the mini video game soundtracks we've enjoyed over the decades. Joining me, Ryan Heyman, in Sound of Play 112 is Joshua Garrity. Hello there. Hey, Josh, you are uh, coming in with a track that uh, I, I guess if I didn't know the game that it came from, I, I probably have like a 50-50 shot of identifying it. I, I was just getting kind of tripped up on the fact that it's so kind of like upbeat and fun but then thinking back to that soundtrack a lot of the pieces are kind of upbeat and fun in a way that i wouldn't expect looking at the art style anyways so this is from uh castlevania symphony of the Mm -hmm. night and the track is called uh marble gallery and the composer is forgive my pronunciation uh michiru yamane apologies to our japanese listeners uh again but yeah, the, so most of the tracks in um, Castlevania Symphony of Night are pretty upbeat, but they kind of conform to the either kind of going for their like heavy metal or kind of gothic classical music, kind of a mix of the two. This feels like a it meanders away from that and and does something a bit more dancey and a bit more like. I feel like I could bob my head to this and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, sway a little bit. It's it's really and, and it gets in your head. And I, I and I love the energy that it has. Um, and it, it, it's great for I think there's a lot of kind of combat during the sequence in which it plays. And I I think it's a great piece of battle music. It really mm. energizes the player. Um, and yeah, it's it it's great to have something that's a bit more poppy and a bit it feels less like it's trying to evoke the setting and more just trying to give the player something really, really great to listen to. Yeah, gonna stylistically, it sounds a lot like, for lack of a better term, just PlayStation music. Yeah. And we'll hear some of that later on. But, you know, going back to the Crash Bandicoot trilogy with the new re-release or, you know, thinking back to Spyro the Dragon and some of its early PlayStation games, uh, they they had like a very kind of specific sound. And I think this one kind of rides adjacent to yeah, that. Yeah. We are going to be moving on to another very fun, upbeat song, a request from the forum. But before we do that, I am curious. This next track comes from Mario and Rabbids Kingdom Battle. Have you had a chance to play this one yet, Josh? I want to. Um, okay. I have not had the chance. I've seen a lot of video footage for it and, and um, I've heard a lot of... Uh, 
praise for the title, but no, I have mm-hmm. not played this yet. Because you, uh, you have some history with the XCOM series, right? Yes. Um, so I don't go all the way back to classic, classic XCOM, um, mm-hmm. for I was a wee babby um, <laughs> uh, at that point in time. Um, but the more recent stuff from Firaxis, um, XCOM Enemy Unknown, and XCOM 2, I- I'm a real big fan of, especially XCOM 2, um, which I think is just uh, as close to perfect as that uh, as that genre can get. And so me loving XCOM 2 as much as I do, it, it has me curious about, um, about this title, just because XCOM 2 is... As much as I love it, it is an ask to uh, mm, to uh, yeah. you know to get someone to play it. Like it, it is relentlessly cruel. It asks um, you to be willing to sacrifice a lot in order to win a battle or even just a situation overall. It's it, it's very draining and it feels like war. It, it, it's trying to evoke that feeling of being battered mm. down by war and how it slowly grinds away at you. And then you have Mario <laughs> and Rabbids. And I don't think, you know, that's not the intention of those two series. It's meant to be fun and light. So I, I'm curious to see how they um, apply kind of that XCOM feel in a way that's more happy and jovial rather than the depressing, grinding feeling of... Uh, <laughs> Uh, of war that the the XCOM series provides. Well, the reviews are in. I've just beaten Mario and Rabbids Kingdom Battle uh, just this last week. Yeah. And uh, it's not easy. Like, it's not a light experience, but it is a lot more forgiving than XCOM. It doesn't have a permadeath system. Uh, that would be weird in a Mario game. <laughs> Mario is now dead. <laughs> Deal with it. Deal with it. <laughs> yeah, but it's uh, it, it does require a lot of strategy it has some really interesting changes to the format and it's a lot more approachable i think immediately approachable than xcom which i think is fun when you kind of wrap your head around it but it can take a little bit of time to learn all the systems and there's a little bit more random chance there whereas mario and rabbits is uh, kind of cuts down on one of the rng um it's a it's an enjoyable experience and that is due in no small part to the wonderful score by grant kirkhope this is a request from shaunas thomas from the forum who says Mario and Rabbids has one of the most joyful scores I've heard in a while. Grant Kirkhope is at it again, making me smile with every subsequent level. The battle theme is an amazing piece. Given its repetitive use, the mid-boss theme is the true standout. I honestly feel like the music in the game is a large reason behind why I'm enjoying it so much. It's hard to think of anyone better for the job than Grant Kirkhope. I mean, other than, like, maybe Koji Kondo. But, you know, it's kind of fun that, uh... That this new game with this this new mashup, new studio, new feel, entirely new genre for Mario does have a new sound as well. And while Kirkhope is certainly riffing off of Koji Kondo's work, he's bringing a lot of his own feeling to it as well. You know, this one especially sounds a lot like the Viva Pinata soundtrack mm. uh, and the work that he did there. But um, it's it's interesting because. I feel like Kirkhope is also kind of bringing in, you know, consciously or unconsciously even a few motifs from uh, his past games before were games that he's worked on that have been completely separate from both the Mario and Rabbid series. Yeah. Uh, this track in particular has the theme song of Klungo, which is uh, Grunty's, uh, Gruntilda's 
associate yeah, from Banjo Tooie. I was gonna say there's definitely some banjo DNA in that yep. track. <laughs> um, but I think that's entirely. I feel like that's appropriate given that you know mm-hmm. this is a Western developed game, and I feel like it makes sense to have somebody whose sound was kind of adjacent to what the Japanese teams were doing. Uh, similar, you know, yeah. with classic. Um, Mario 64, you've got Banjo-Kazooie kind of alongside of it. And I feel like if you're kind of evoking like Western games of that period using more Japanese characters, you know, using Japanese characters, it makes sense to kind of draw influence from franchises that, you know, were inspired by Mario that were developed here in, in, in Western territories. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, we got a little bit of Banjo, a little bit of Mario in this. I don't know the Rabbids musical history well enough to identify whether or not that or the kind of Rayman musical aesthetic worked its way into this track at all, but maybe someone who has played the Rabbids games can uh, can clue us in on that as well. But until then, let's listen to Mid-Boss by Grant Kirkhope from Mario and Rabbids Kingdom Battle. <laughs> This next track is uh, by one of my favorite composers. You know, he doesn't have a 
wide array of games that he's composed for, but I always really enjoy uh, hearing new music from him. Uh, this is by Kyle Gabler. This is from Human Resource Machine, a game put up by the Tomorrow Corporation, uh, which you will recognize from Little Inferno and World of Goo. Uh, Kyle Gabler, I believe, is half of the two-man team. I think it's it's a very small team, and I think it's just him and one other fellow, though it could be uh, you know maybe one or two more than that. I, I don't know that for sure, but I know that they each do kind of multiple tasks in creating these really unique really bizarre but uh, always really satisfying and fun games human resource machine is probably the least uh, universally beloved of those uh, tomorrow corporation games but uh, you know it it does still have its fan base and i think the music you know say what you will about the gameplay which might not be to everyone's taste but the music certainly holds up and uh, this track in particular is it's fun it's bouncy the thing that i like most about it is that it mixes together it's a whole wide array of really weird instrumental combinations things that you'd never hear together it's a lot of fun uh josh do you have any history with the tomorrow corporation games i'm familiar with world of goo and um little inferno um little inferno um i i found to be really quite charming just that that mm-hmm. whole concept of just burning to keep everyone alive <laughs> um and um world of glue uh, i think world of goo is probably um in terms of just pure mechanics is probably my favorite of their their games that i've played mm-hmm. i i must admit i i haven't played human resource machine in any capacity but um i really like this track um and it, it makes me want to seek out um uh, more of Kyla's work because um yeah this is really uh, my kind of thing like that uh, just more kind of chilled out I wouldn't describe it as electronic but kind of synthetic music it, it's it's really really good stuff yeah did you ever beat little inferno I did yes okay cool yeah yeah because that one uh, that one certainly has one of those last minute twists that <laughs> kind of recontextualizes the whole thing and uh and it's hard to talk about the game without having completed it. You know, you might not think that going into it because uh, it, it is essentially a satire of a lot of the types of games that were being made for mobile devices at the time that at which that came out. And so it feels like you get the joke pretty early on. Yeah. But it, uh, you know, once you stick with it, if you persist, it has a surprising payoff at the end. Yeah. <laughs> and Human Resource Machine is a game that is supposed to kind of teach, uh, not programming necessarily, but a lot of kind of programming logic. And so in that way, I, I guess it is structured more as like an educational tool than uh, like as immediate a gameplay experience as their previous two games. And so I think that is what is dividing players more than anything else. But um, it is available for a wide array of platforms, PC, Mac, Switch, Wii U, iOS, Linux, and Android. So I'm sure if you have interest in seeking it out, you might already own it or it's uh, easy enough to obtain. So let's listen to a little music. This is called The Data Won't Collate Itself from Human Resource Machine. Thank you. 
from the forum. This is from a similar type of game, not mechanically, but I don't know, for some reason, I always hold Tomorrow Corporation and Amanita Design kind of in uh, in the same hand, so to speak. You know, they have a very uh, kind of similar aesthetic with the hand-drawn uh, visuals being kind of uh, humorously puppeted around sometimes. Lovely to look at, a lot of detail in their graphics, and a lot of uh, care goes into the music. And so that's what we're going to hear here. This is a request from Sam Lutt from the forum who says, Machinarium revived my interest in point-and-click adventure games, having last played Pajama Sam as a youngster. The game's intricate and living junk punk aesthetic instantly drew me in, and I knew I needed to experience the game for myself. My girlfriend and I enjoyed taking turns solving puzzles and clicking about the levels, which I delighted in as she does not play games at all. Every so often, we would get stuck and need to consult the Game Boy answer book. I admired Amanita for not simply giving the player any direct answers, instead having them to complete a minigame to unlock a vital but often cryptic clue. Even more delightful was the whimsical melody that played as you navigated through the minigame, Certainly one of Machinarium's more upbeat tracks, this piece is genuinely toe-tapping and is a credit to Thomas Dvorak's creativity. The Game Boy tune always reminded me of the delight of solving the intuitive, head-scratching puzzles littered around Machinarium's clanky, rusty, whimsical world. I do like a little bit of atmosphere in my point-and-click adventure games, and I think that's what Amanita Design uh, does best in in their game design. Uh, Josh, have you ever played any of their works, whether it's Botanicula or Machinarium or Samarost? Um, I've I've played uh, Machinarium. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it's one of those games that I played about three hours of and meant to always go back to it and haven't. Um, so I yeah. haven't finished it. But the art the art direction in that game is fantastic. The personality they're able to inject into all the different robots that you encounter. Um, one that really sticks out in my mind is um, a really depressing robot that you meet in a prison cell. Um, I, I don't really want to spoil any of the kind of puzzles because they're all really quite creative and, and, and really clever. The amount of personality they inject into that world is is really really fantastic, and my understanding is that they that that's just once something they do consistently with all of their mm. games, and the and the music helps that of course as well. Amanita design games are always really interesting. They're uh, often very densely populated screens full of really sometimes harshly textured objects you know this one in particular has a lot of machinery botanicula and samarost lean more on a kind of nature feel they they kind of take like a hybrid approach between controlling the character directly and being kind of a god figure in these point and click adventure games you know when you're clicking on certain objects in games where you play the character that 
encourages the the character to interact with the object in games where he plays more of a kind of external god figure it just causes little animations to happen based on what you click on and, and I, I always liked how amanita design kind of blended the two and uh, gives you a little bit of both and it just makes each of these really enormous scenes seem really vibrant and really full of life and really uh, interesting and, and fun to explore everything makes a funny little noise and sometimes that contributes to the music as well but yeah they always have a really cool audio styling as well. So this is the Game Boy tune from Machinarium.
So speaking of songs that uh, represent some sort of mechanical presence <laughs> in a somewhat broken down world. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you introduce this, this next one from a recent game? Yes. Um, so this is from a game that got a lot of bad reviews this year. Uh, <laughs> no one's really talking about it. Um, it's uh, Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Um, and the uh, the piece of music... I was joking, by the way. Uh, the piece of music that... <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll layer in a laugh track. It's like <laughs> <laughs> um, so the piece of music I've chosen is called Guardian Battle. And this was uh, composed by Manaka Kataoka and uh, Yusuke uh, Awata. And the reason why I love this track is because it so perfectly evokes the monster, the creature, the mechanism which it's representing. It feels like a clockwork terminator methodically chasing you down. Um, I love how it starts with the kind of panicked piano, like, oh my God, it spotted me. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Am I going to run behind some cover? Um, it, that, that, for me, that piano piece is like, this is the point of the track where you're making a choice as a player, mm, yeah. whether you're going to run away or you're going to stand your ground and you're going to fight this thing. And then once that subsides you go into the kind of really like mechanical like repetitive too and i'm going to say it lacks emotion and that's going to sound like a criticism it's not it feels soulless in the way mm -hmm. that the guardians do it they like so the the regular battlefield uh battle theme that you have with you know the goblins and and the big trolley thing. i don't know their proper name but the big trolley things that sounds more kind of aggressive and there's more kind of a, a emotional um aggression to that that theme tune this feels like i will chase you down and kill you i have no uh, emotion either way there's no feeling here i am just programmed to do this and i must do it and i must chase you down and there's something even creepier about that for me yeah. there's something worse about it having no stakes because you can't reason with it you can't um <laughs> you can't have a conversation with a guardian and go hey maybe don't like you know ganon well, what's he doing that that's a bad dude you can't do that with a machine and and that's why i love this track because it perfectly evokes that and 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 i i'm hard pressed to think of um more recent examples um i if i were to go back in the history of games there definitely is examples of music that kind of evoke the creature um one that's springing to mind uh is the regenerator theme from resident evil 4 i think that's a really mm. effective piece of music for a monster but out of you know recent examples the guardian battle theme is absolutely spot on yeah i think this piece of music scales really well to the experience, the kind of changing experience of running across a guardian as you play the game. Because early on in the game, these guardians are pretty much the last thing that you want to see. Yeah. You know, you hear the theme and you hear that, that mad piano start up and you just basically try to run in the opposite direction and get away from this thing because it can, it can kill you in, in one or two shots of its eye laser. And it just seems like an inconquerable force. And so this music is kind of like maniacal and taunting in a way. But as you uh, get towards the end of the game, as you power up, as you become more confident with your parries and more kind of advanced weaponry, then these things start to become a lot of fun to fight. 
and you're kind of like hunting them down for sport almost. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like this music also kind of plays well with that mentality of, you know, you hear the music and you're like, oh yeah, it's on, here we go. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's both scary and fun depending on what kind of mindset you come into it with and based on your expectations. So um, yeah, it's a, it's a cool piece of music. It definitely leans into the like spideriness of the creatures with its multiple legs, almost like a, uh, the piano player would need that many legs to play that many keys at once on the piano. (laughs) (laughs) Um, just all sorts of things going on in the track. I I think if I had any complaint about this track is that it sounds too similar to the tune that plays when you get on a horse, I think it is. And so I, every time I got onto a horse, I always looked around because I thought that I accidentally like crossed too close into a guardian's territory. Yeah. Just like, I don't know. It took me a while. It took somebody else pointing it out before I realized that's not what was happening. So (laughs) it's, it's probably just my own fault. But, um, anyways, this is the guardian battle from the legend of Zelda breath of the wild. of recent switch tracks there let's go back in time we were talking about playstation music a bit earlier and we have a request from the forum that is just that this comes from mononoke from the forum who says my second pick is from another dragon oriented video game spyro the dragon i really enjoy all three of the soundtracks from all three of the original ps1 spyro games by former the police drummer Stuart copeland They are a real eclectic mix of instrumentation and composition that really enhances the personality of all three Insomniac games. 
but the original game's soundtrack is still my favorite. Toasty is my chosen track, mostly for its simple yet catchy main melody, but also because it plays during the game's first boss fight, which is a nostalgic one for me. A sheep on stilts impersonating a giant scarecrow. I remember that, yeah. You can't get much more charming than that. <laughs> right, this is uh, composed by Stuart Copeland, uh, who we uh, mentioned was a member of the police <laughs> back in the day. Oh, really? Um, oh, he was wow. called by uh, Rolling Stone in 2016, the 10th best drummer of all time. So, you know, for what it's <laughs> worth, Rolling Stone anyways. But yeah, it's, it's kind of neat that uh, to have some sort of more like famous outside of video game names composing for games. We talked about on the Sonic special, of course, Michael Jackson, and we've had a couple of uh, you know, Tommy Tallarico tracks in the past. But it's, um, yeah, it's just always, always fun to kind of run across these names. <laughs> uh, Josh, did you ever play Spyro or any of the uh, spinoff Skyliner games later on? Um, my my only experience of Spyro is uh, classic Spyro um, back mm-hmm. in the day when I was a child. Um, yep. So I, uh, my my experience of Spyro is a bit um, weird because back in the PS One, so my uh, my dad bought a PS One for me and my brother to share, and the intention is that me and my brother would play it ourselves but i was a bit weird in that so movies and 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 television were kind of my first love Mm -hmm. and i didn't really get into video games properly until the ps2 era so like i i tried to play spyro the dragon and and i didn't really get on with it and what ended up happening was my dad would just play the game for us and we would just Mm -hmm. watch him so we were effectively doing let's plays before let plays were even a thing shouting racial slurs oh yeah uh... yeah my my dad just turned into a horrific racist like his politics entirely no my dad is very left-wing um anyway um um but um so this track is kind of um even though like i don't have great affection for the spyro the dragon games now but this track toasty is kind of a nostalgia button for me because it, that that music instantly takes me back to my childhood and kind of sharing the you know PS1 experiences with my dad and my brother all all three of us kind of sitting on a couch in what we called the rumpus room don't mm. ask um <laughs> and um we had the TV set up with um all the games and stuff like that and we'd be eating crisps and stuff like that so yeah like the, this track for me is like you know taking me back in time and and remembering that 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 time when my dad was trying to get us into games before we were really ready that's cool yeah when i think back to the original spyro the dragon soundtrack there's a very specific instrument that comes to mind and i don't know how to describe it but um like there's a a really specific sound that i associate with that soundtrack and this one doesn't quite play into that but um it still definitely does have that kind of playstation sound it's fun because everyone's kind of watching spyro the dragon right now after the success of the crash bandicoot uh, remaster trilogy um, everybody's kind of like oh hey probably spyro is just around the corner there and uh, you know it's it's the popular kid in school again that everyone is just waiting for its uh, its comeback to come around. But yeah, um, yeah, it's kind of only a matter of time, probably seeing how uh, how long that Crash trilogy uh, sat at the top of the charts and surprised everyone with how yeah. successful it was. But um, yeah, I'd be I'd be up for a 
And there's actually a really fun project that I just kind of stumbled across um, just through the gaming news. There is a Kickstarter. I don't know if it's still uh, in the Kickstarter phase, whether it's moved on uh, past the fundraising portion, Uh, but it's a game called Griff the Winged Lion. And it's pretty much like a, it's an original property. It's made by just some indie studio, but it's certainly a love letter specifically to Spyro the Dragon. It has some Crash Bandicoot elements as well. But yeah, look up a video of that and that will definitely give you some uh, Spyro flashbacks. And it's it's kind of neat to see people picking up where the PlayStation 1 and 64 generation left off. You know, I, I like seeing games that are stylized so the graphics look like they did back then, uh, employing some gameplay mechanics that we haven't seen since that era. Uh, so yeah, to kind of put us ourselves back in that 1998 mindset, let's listen to Toasty by Stuart Copeland from Spyro the Dragon.
This next track is, I don't believe it's from a game, although I have read kind of mixed things on that. I've not actually played the game that this is about, but from what I've heard, it sounds like this was a fan project that was like incorporated into later chapters of this episodic release um, as kind of like an Easter egg. Uh, just because, you know, the the developer was really kind of in tune with the fan community. Uh, but the reason that I highlight this is because it's, I think, a kind of an interesting cultural moment that I've been mostly kind of unaware and absent from. Uh, we were kind of making fun of Let's Players earlier, uh, which, you know, it's kind of punching down a little bit. You know, they, they aren't here to defend themselves. They aren't all terrible racists. That is just something that's in the news recently. And actually, a lot of Let's Players are uh, really wonderful people and have grown these really supportive communities around games that otherwise probably wouldn't have uh, taken off and grown to popularity. Some of the games that have thrived the most have been in the like alternative horror scene. I mean that like uh, Five Nights at Freddy's and Hello Neighbor and Bendy and the Ink Machine and these games that in this era of YouTube and Twitch streaming, it, it's attracted a whole new audience of kids mostly and, and some adults as well into these kind of weird, funny games that are just so alien to my experience as a player growing up. And this whole scene of, you know, Five Nights at Freddy's and Bendy and the Ink Machine is the first time where I feel too old to understand what the kids are into. <laughs> Like, I'm finally, like, coming up against that. It's really kind of disquieting in a way. <laughs> yeah. Because I like to think that I'm pretty, at least adaptable, and, uh, like, I, I do a decent enough job of keeping up with popular trends within video gaming. You know, I, I at least understand all of the, you know, the MOBAs and the Player Unknown's Battlegrounds and all the kind of popular things, even if I'm not into them myself. But, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a, kind of drawing a blank with, these kind of alternative horror games uh josh how aware of this scene are you i mean i'm aware of it but like it's it's the consequence it's partly the consequence of our kind of uh closed off um social media spheres in that we kind of stick with either our age group or older like i have no problem you know following people who are 20 30 years older than me but i'll never follow anyone who's like 18 uh, <laughs> because i just i remember how i was when i was 18 and it's like i'm <laughs> he's just gonna have terrible opinions like give him <laughs> give him five years and then he'll then i'll follow him but like um yeah it's it's this weird thing where um you know i i you know i work for a video game company and mm-hmm. we have to engage with kind of you know, influencers, uh, to use the industry term, um, Mm. a lot of the time. And there are these people that I've never encountered in my, you know, uh, travels through the internet. Like I've never heard talk, you know, I've never heard anyone I know talk about them who, you know, and I'm surrounded by people who are, you know, into video games, who are, Mm -hmm. are engrossed in video games, never heard of them. And they have like, uh, 500,000 subscribers, 600,000 subscribers. And I have no idea who they are. And, and yeah, like in, they're all playing like five nights with Freddy and uh, at Freddy's and stuff like that. And like, I don't know anyone in my social 
you know, social spheres who has actually played Five Nights as, you know, Five Nights at Freddy's. Like it's, it's such mm-hmm. a, it, it's such a different world um, that, that that's over there. And, and we're, we're just not part of it. It's, it's really odd. This might be kind of a personal philosophy. It might be kind of an aspect of being like a, that kind of Canaan rinse uh, thoroughness, but you know, whenever I see that there's something that I don't understand, I'm never satisfied <laughs> to just go on with my life, continuing to not understand it. And so I've, uh, I've tried to kind of educate myself into this whole scene and a lot of these games that are drawing a lot of attention because, uh, you know, like it or not, they're going to be uh, reference points for large portions of our audience and the video game developers of the future. And so, you know, I, I think it's somewhat important to at least have a cursory understanding of how these yeah. things work. And so uh, one of the really interesting things that I came across was that um, this particular scene of, I guess let's call them Let's Play games, has a really cool kind of musical scene around it. A lot of really talented people writing music, uh, not necessarily like remixing tracks, which is what I think we kind of grew up with in our musical video game sphere, uh, but writing like original songs about these games. And so, you know, you search on uh, Google Play Music has a ton of them. YouTube has a ton of them. Uh, just search for Five Nights at Freddy's or Bendy and the Ink Machine, and you'll find just tons of songs, just really lovingly arranged and um, really kind of professionally produced and, you know, entire albums of songs of kind of like concept albums telling stories from these games and creating original stories based on these games. And it's, uh, it's, it's really cool. And so that's what I wanted to do today is to share one of those and to hopefully <laughs> kind of give our audience a, a look into a culture that if they are um, anything like us, they might not have had the chance to encounter otherwise. So this is called the Bendy and the Ink Machine song. This is composed by Kyle Allen Music. And um, again, I've kind of received mixed uh, reports on whether or not this was incorporated into one of the later chapters of Bendy and the Ink Machine, uh, which to give kind of a basic overview is kind of like a horror walking simulator type of game uh, set in this animator's office uh, who created this, this machine, this ink machine that is able to bring his characters into the real world. And, you know, you kind of go in with that understanding and then the understanding that like, obviously something has gone wrong and there's been some sort of mysterious, nefarious happenings going on there. And you think that it's because of these characters and the story kind of unfolds over multiple chapters. I don't believe the game is done yet. And so if you're interested in it, there's still plenty of time to catch up. Bendy character and all of his friends are drawn in the style of those old like 19 and I'm going to get the era wrong like I would guess 1920s 30s 40s cartoons uh, (laughs) kind of like Betty Boop the early Merry Melodies type of cartoons that a parallel to what Cuphead is doing later this month but more dark in tone a little bit it's still pretty cheery looking looks like early Mickey Mouse in a way um, but I love the design of Bendy himself, and uh, it, it seems like kind of a uh, cool and interesting story that they're telling. So, you know, I, I would encourage all of you to look into it, you know, 
uh, educate yourself and, and just see what uh, people are going so crazy for. <laughs> yeah, so this is the Bendy and the Ink Machine song by Kyle Allen Music. These pipes that flow from the ink machine give life to a little friend. Moving on the screen, he's got two pointy ears and can be seen. Moving in the halls behind the scenes, he's listening and always moving, following and choosing, sending and improving. Then one day you pull the spring and you reanimated our little Bendy. Bendy and the Ink Machine. In a way you've never seen. Or he'll make you scream He's got a friend named Morris That loves to play The good old music from the day In the big lodge band with all of his friends The third it was there for him till the end With a hoot and a toot That's all he'd play But now he's put up on display Waiting to be animated with no heart But that's the story for another day Bendy and the Ink Machine In a way you've never seen Bendy and the Ink Machine Created us for the gods To please them and to make things right And settle up all the odds We were never supposed to exist In this dimensional plane Now we suffer, it's all your fault And you will know our pain Pain, 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 Better watch out, or he'll make you scream. Bendy and the Ink Machine. In a way you've never seen. Bendy and the Ink Machine. Well, our next Better track is from one of the Final Fantasy games that I have not played. It's probably not uh, not hugely helpful. I think I've played maybe two or three of them. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, but I have acquainted myself a little bit with uh, Final Fantasy music recently, playing through Theater Rhythm Curtain Call on the 3DS, which I picked up as a way of kind of like researching Final Fantasy music in hopes of maybe someday doing like a Sound of Play special, um, because Final Fantasy music is it's very uh, acclaimed and the series has been running forever. And, uh, you know, it has a lot of... Uh, a lot of prestige behind it, but this is a game that I am not familiar with, and I still am not enough of an expert in the Final Fantasy musical genre to know whether this fits really nicely into that sound or whether this soundtrack goes off in a completely different direction. So uh, how, how long have you been into the Final Fantasy series? I go back to seven uh, Final Fantasy VII, mm-hmm. which I think is going to be the case for most European um, mm. listeners, um, uh, just because I think um, I, I don't know, I don't have the full details to hand, but I believe there were some uh, complications in getting access to the earlier entries in the series in Europe. I know America had similar issues, but I think we even ha- in Europe we even uh, got Final Fantasy uh, VI at a much later 
later date than oh, really? uh, than uh, than, mm. than the US. I may be wrong on that, but I, I believe that's the case. I, I've gotten that information from somewhere. That's a shame. Six is a good one. Yeah, and I'm yet to play it, and I it's <laughs> you know burning a hole in my pile of shame. Well, hey, SNES Classic. I think it's on there, right? Is that one of the included games? It must be because <laughs> it, it's it's consistently like if you know I don't put too much credence into top ten lists, but. Mm. It, it says something that is consistently in those lists when people talk about SNES classics. Yeah, well, so is Donkey Kong Country 2, but it didn't seem to help that one very much. I'm still a little bit bitter about that. Anyways, I don't mean to distract from Final Fantasy talk. Yes, I've kind of dabbled. From, so I wouldn't describe myself as a Final Fantasy fan of the series mm-hmm. as a whole. I think I would have done before uh, 13 came along and uh, dashed my <laughs> excitement against the rocks. Um, but like looking back on the series, it, it's really specific entries that kind of stand out to me. Um, uh, 10, I think, was a, a really good Final Fantasy game. 7 kind of remains my absolute favorite. I mean, there's something to be said about it being the first one I experienced and, and mm-hmm. thus being the gold standard by which I measure the rest of them. But honestly, I, I, I think that game, it doesn't hold up. I think there are a lot of things that have <laughs> yeah. aged quite badly, but I think that it still holds a, a resonance for me that um, I, I still think is worth measuring the series against. Um, and 12 is an interesting one because I think it is really different from the rest of the series. And it's worth saying that, um, this is not, it doesn't have the, uh, the traditionally associated. So by this time, Nobuo Uematsu was kind of going off and doing his own thing. Um, Mm -hmm. He's the composer that's most associated with the Final Fantasy sound. He is the guy who um, composed all the classic tracks, like One Winged Angel that everyone once played at concerts and and so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. He's not the composer on this. So it's it's Atoshi Sakamoto who's the composer on Final Fantasy XII. And thus, XII has a very different sound. And I think it's... It's appropriate for 12 because 12 is set in the kingdom of Ivalice. Um, the kingdom of Ivalice, e- uh, not kingdom of Ivalice, the world of Ivalice. Ivalice um, originates from the Final Fantasy Tactics games. Hmm. Um, so this is the first time a mainline Final Fantasy has actually reused a world from one of its spin-offs, which I think is really fascinating. Um, and as a result, like the, the world feels much more um, fleshed out already. Um, like the it just the cities feel vibrant and full of culture in a way mm. that I think uh, is the envy of the rest of the series. I think Final Fantasy twelve does an exceptional job of doing that, and I think the music um does a great job of doing that generally as well like there's a a real feeling that locations and and areas have the music is kind of reflecting the cultures of the areas you're going into final fantasy so nobuo amatsu's um music he tends to go with character leitmotifs so um characters will have um you know a theme that's associated with him whereas in 12 it feels more like there there definitely are characters themes but the 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 themes that kind of stick out to me are more associated with institutions and locations rather than individuals 
and that adds to the kind of scale of the world because like the the characters in Final Fantasy 12 ultimately feel like small players in a bigger much wider conflict they're not the center of the story in the same way that Cloud is in Final Fantasy 7 it feels like they're contributing they're one story in a tapestry of thousands mm. and so you have the the theme that I've chosen which is the Arcadian uh, Empire theme, which is a, um, an example of one of those pieces of music that represents an institution, a powerhouse in that world, which is the Empire. I do feel like this track does owe quite a bit to Star Wars. It's definitely... <laughs> um, Final Fantasy XII owes a lot to Star Wars in a lot of ways. I think it does stuff, re some really creative original stuff with that inspiration, but it definitely owes a lot to Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And the Arcadian Empire theme is drawing a lot from the Imperial music in those movies. and But... With its own flair, with its own personality, it feels um, from a diff uh, you know a much older era. It doesn't feel like a, a sci-fi track necessarily. It feels more appropriate for the kind of medieval uh, magic era that uh, Final Fantasy XII is is set in. What I like about it is it makes that this big, unimaginably huge empire feel threatening and organized, but also passionate and powerful. Um, and I love this track. I, I think it honestly, um, I think Hitoshi Sakamoto's work in this game um, is very different from Nobuo Uematsu's work, but I think it definitely stands shoulder to shoulder with some of the best of his work. Well, and this is the Arcadian Empire from Final Fantasy XII.
We have one track left today, but before we play that, we are going to remind everyone that you can venture over to our forum at caneandrinse.com forum. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at caneandrinse, and uh, you can request tracks on any of those locations, and we will play them in a future show. We have uh, quite a backlog already, but um, we will eventually get through all of them if it, if it kills us. We will. But it won't because we enjoy listening to our music because you all, so far, have excellent taste. <laughs> thank you. Keep them coming. I've been Ryan Heyman. I would just like to thank our regular Cane and contributor, Josh Garrity, for uh, joining me today, as well as all of our community contributors. Please keep the requests coming. Josh, it's always a pleasure to podcast with you. <laughs> thank you very much for having me. Well, I've got something... Uh, Something weird to dump on your lap now. <laughs> Ryan, why have you done this to me? Why? <laughs> why? <laughs> this is more of a talking point than anything else. And yeah. I have to give a bit of a warning. This next one gets a bit spicy. So uh, why, not, why not put the kitties to bed and uh, let's resume when it's just, just adults in the room again. <laughs> this is a real weird track. This is the ending credits theme from Perfect Dark Zero. This is called Pearl Necklace by Morrison Poe. And the thing about this track that stands out is how like, weirdly sexual it is in a way that doesn't fit Perfect Dark at all. And when you say weirdly sexual, what you mean is it's incredibly sexual. In, in, incredibly <laughs> direct and explicit. <laughs> yeah, there's no... Like, I... When I saw the title Pearl Necklace and then you gave that explanation, I was like, okay, so obviously they're using a term for something that's pretty dirty, but yep. I'm sure the actual song itself will <laughs> deal in symbolism and innuendo, like suggestion. No, it's pretty clear what's happening in this song. Um, very explicit, just, you know, explicitly saying, I want to feel you inside mm -hmm. me. And can I take my clothes off? I can do it slowly yeah like you know there are other games that this type of song might fit into there's quite a few games you know like uh even something like fear effect leaned a bit heavier into the sexiness than yeah. uh, perfect dark which i don't feel even though it has kind of like a and of a slim figured female protagonist, it never really leans into the sexiness of the situation unless I'm forgetting something. But it, it always felt just kind of like she's just another agent doing her job and it's never really drawn attention to yeah. her femaleness <laughs> to a um, kind of an unfortunate term that we have to qualify that in the video game space as being uh, so unique that a female character is not drawn attention to for being explicitly sexy the thing is like i was trying to think of examples where this song would be appropriate mm -hmm. and you know the first thing that comes to mind you know out of games that you know i love but you know have to admit you know there's sexual objectification going on mm -hmm. uh, bayonetta immediately sprang to mind but even that doesn't make sense for this song because bayonetta is so kind of the, the series is so 
self-aware and silly and and over the top and and the only thing that works is that kind of like weird like comedy stripper versions of uh classic <laughs> like so, you know songs that they do in those games like mm-hmm. with moon river and like that's the only route you can go down you can't be that explicit in bayonetta <laughs> yeah. because then the joke falls apart i hope i don't sound like i'm against songs that are about sex like that like i perfectly fine with that but it's the clash it's the clash of context here like if the if we were talking about a game that was explicitly about relationships and about sexual relationships mm-hmm. maybe then that's yeah that's fine yeah. I, I don't I still yeah. think this song is a bit too on the nose for my taste but yeah i can see it happening but this is a this is you know lady bond basically like yeah. it just feels wrong to have this kind of song when you could be talking about, you know, um, spy stuff and, and, you know, taking out the bad guys. And no, mm-hmm. you're just immediately going to this. It's weird. Yeah, especially because, you know, this plays right after the final boss fight, which is kind of a uh, one of those super powered, super mutants you have to, you know, just load tons of bullets into and, and dodge shots and run between cover. And uh, it's a very kind of high action type of scene where Joanna Dark is on her own fighting for her life against this awful creature. And then you get this uh, really like submissive song about yeah. like somebody just seeking to like pleasure some uh, the second person individual that would be us, the listener, I suppose. Uh, and it's just, you know, it, it doesn't fit the kind of, you know, go off and, and kick ass all on her own type of character that they built Joanna Dark to be. And yeah, so just like everything about this just doesn't fit, I think, musically, like it's kind of a, um, it has like a nice sound to it. Morrison Poe contributes a couple of other tracks to the Perfect Dark Zero soundtrack and, uh, and, you know, I, I think I like their sound, but it's just really, I think it's really hard to overlook the lyrics in here, especially because like the lyrics play during the game version as well. If this was just like a licensed track that they stripped out the lyrics for and just played the instrumental over the credits, then like fine. But yeah, it just doesn't fit. So I'm going to let you all just listen to this and uh, I don't know, give us your opinions. I'm, I'm really curious to hear like, what were they thinking why is this song in Perfect Dark Zero? It's just an oddity. Uh, so, yeah, here we are. Um, this is Pearl Necklace by Morrison Poe. That means exactly what you think it means. From Perfect Dark Zero for the Xbox 360. We will see you next week. Oh. 